am speaking to author Tim Pratt, uh, a name you're no doubt familiar with if you listen to pretty much any of the fiction podcasts out there or read any e-zines. His uh, stories are hugely popular. Won him a Hugo in 2006 for his short story, Impossible Dreams, and he was nominated for a Nebula before that with his story, Little Gods. He's been all over Asimov's, Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons, and uh, and certainly the Drabblecast. Tim, I think uh, we've done at least... 10 of your stories throughout the years, probably, wow. yeah, probably closer to 12 or 13, uh, all the way back since 2007, 2008. A lot of them stories we came to you and, uh, and commissioned actually. That's just how, uh, how much the disheveled masses out there cry for more Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to it. Yeah. I tell you the echoes of their callous field hand fists on their animal skin drums. Honestly, they keep me up at night. So <laughs> I don't know what I can do, but as an editor, I'm always coming back to this guy. Uh, or perking up, at least when I'm reading something is, because I, uh, he delivers and uh, across all genres, really. And he knows how to write a good goddamn short story. And, and we thank you, Tim, for taking a minute to talk to us here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I say we like there's anybody else in the line. <laughs> Aside from my, my cat, probably, over there listening to me. And probably the NSA. They're keeping tabs on my cat. I should hope. Well, yeah. He's a Muslim, so, you know, <laughs> it's horrible all the profiling he goes through. <laughs> anyway, Tim, uh, let's let's start with the basics here. Um, I'm curious, what's the Tim Pratt origin story? How did you get started in writing? Did you uh, did you grow up reading sci fi as a kid or take courses in college or, or just get bitten by some radioactive spec fic writing arachnid? How did how did it work out for you? The earliest piece of writing that exists in a shoebox at my mom's house somewhere is from when I was in second grade. I'm assured that I was writing even before that. Um, so it's just kind of what I've always done. I've always been interested in it. Um, I remember very distinctly the moment when I was in maybe second grade reading probably an X-Man comic book and it occurring to me that this was written by a person that this wasn't just, you know, like a rock formation or clouds in the sky. This was something that somebody had done. And the, thus, in theory, it was something that I could do. And at least from that point on, I've been writing pretty furiously. I always tell people that I was an incredibly slow learner because I was writing pretty steadily from at least third grade on and, you know, got published when I was 20 or something. So it took a while, mm. took a little time. So it was a slow development. As for the genre, you know, my mom was a, was a huge reader. My dad was too. I mean, we were, you know, kind of poor, lived in a trailer in rural North Carolina, but there were always books. The house was full of books, and it was mostly mass-market paperback horror novels from the 80s, so I read a ton of that stuff. You know, and but my great grandmother, who I would stay with in the summers, was a huge science fiction reader. She had this guest bedroom that was just full of bookshelves, and they were just full of paperbacks, and it was everything from Asimov to Zelazny, you know. And so I got my education in summers there. And I remember one summer I'd read all of the books, every single one that she had on the shelves, and I was moping around and said, you know, well, she was like, why don't you just go read something? I said, well, I've read all those books. I read everything. She said, come here, and she took me into the guest room, and there was, you know, a chest of drawers in there, and she pulled open one of the drawers. And it wasn't didn't have clothes or mothballs. It had more paperbacks in it. <laughs> Tim, I, I think I speak for everybody when I say that you have the coolest great grandmother that ever existed on the planet. That is amazing. 
She was pretty cool. Hilariously, she hated short stories. She liked novels. She would occasionally accidentally buy a short story collection and then give it to me in disgust when she realized that it was not a novel. Um, (laughs) I don't know why. I think she just dug the deep immersive thing. But yeah, so I mean, I've always read that stuff, you know, and I read other things too. I love mystery and crime novels and literary fiction and poetry. You know, I was, uh, I actually studied poetry in college more than I studied fiction writing. But yeah, science fiction, fantasy, horror has, has always been there. Yeah, maybe that explains a little bit why I think you're successful in so many different varieties of genres. Um, what, what are some of your, your favorite writers that you've, you liked back then, and uh, who are some of the, the writers right now that you're really excited to read? Oh, gosh. Uh, really formative writers for me when I was younger. Charles DeLint was huge um, you know, in terms of writing. Well, what back then was called urban the urban fantasy now tends to mean women sleeping with werewolves, which is fine. I write that <laughs> stuff, too. But, you know, urban fantasy used to just mean magic you know, invading the modern world or, yeah. or, you know, magic intruding into everyday contemporary life. You call it mythic fiction or contemporary fantasy. That's always kind of been my wheelhouse as a writer. So DeLint was really big. Jonathan Carroll was huge. Um, he's, you know, I remember getting the second volume, the second annual volume of the year's best fantasy and horror. I think it was even just called the year's best fantasy back then, the Datlow Windling anthologies that then later became the um, Datlow and Grant and Link anthologies until it went away after 20 some volumes. But if you read those, you know, the 21, 22 years of that, it is a masterclass in how to write fantasy and horror. And I have every single one of them on my shelf, so, you know, and I remember picking up that volume when I was in high school, maybe even junior high uh, at my local library back home and reading Friends Best Man by Jonathan Carroll, reading some um, Charles DeLint stuff, reading a great poem called DX by Joe Haldeman, which is a sort of bizarre wartime parallel universe alternate reality, you know, branching possibilities kind of poem. And those were sort of the stories that just blew my head open. You know, and I would I would read, I read a lot of Lovecraft because back then I could read Lovecraft and not find him complicated in the slightest. <laughs> now. Now it's a very different experience as a somewhat clued-in adult to read Lovecraft. But back then, I was just like, whoa, Squamous, Eldritch. As for people I really love now, you know, it's – that's a big question. K.J. Parker, anytime there's a new K.J. Parker, I jump all over it. Mm. Uh, um, Scott Lynch, really happy that the newest Locke Lamora novel came out. Um, and that the fourth one is probably expected to be along pretty soon. Lynch is always great. Uh, his partner, Elizabeth Bear, is a, is a great novelist, too, but is just one of our best living short story writers, I think. Fantastic stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ted Chang, Kelly Link, mm-hmm. probably two of the best writers that we have, period, in terms of short fiction, not even just in the genre. George Saunders, I think, might be our greatest living short story writer. His collection, 10th of December, is amazing. This should be an easier question. I just wrote like a year in review essay (laughs) three weeks ago of the stuff that I liked in 2013. But yeah. Well, that's fantastic. You just gave us a great summer reading list for those of us who are unfamiliar with some of that. So, you know. Well, let's let's talk about your your process, something I'm sure that uh, other writers out there will be super interested to get your take on. Everyone seems to have their own kind of methodology when they're tapping into the creative process and trying to get their shit going. Do you have a particular process when you sit down to write short stories or uh, do you have a a writing schedule? How do you otherwise manage your, your work time when you're doing this? Uh, This is going to be profoundly disappointing. I will now tell you my entire creative (laughs) process. I think about something 
and then I write it down. Mm. <laughs> I have steadfastly throughout my entire life avoided having any rituals, avoided having any, you know, need to have my special pin in my special place. And people, you know, who require that, that's great. Whatever gets the word down is great. Mm -hmm. But I have always wanted to be capable of writing a story on scraps of paper while standing in line at the grocery store. I certainly wrote a lot of fiction in college in my math classes when I probably should have been paying attention to math. Um, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm not very twee about process. You know, if I'm having trouble figuring out a story, I go for a bike ride or I go wash dishes, do something that occupies my body. And that tends to allow my mind to sort of roll over and work out plot problems. But no, I don't write every day. I don't have a schedule that I adhere to. I like writing. So, you know, it's great entertainment for me. I enjoy it. So I tend to write pretty frequently, but I'll, you know, I'll go four or five days without writing sometimes. If I go longer than that, my wife says I get hard to live with. But <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, uh, I, I have no fancy stuff. But, you know, the thing is, writers love hearing about other people's rituals. Mm -hmm. New writers love hearing about the rituals that other writers have. And I, I always wonder why. I always suspect that it's a desire for sympathetic magic. You know, if I can do the thing that they do, maybe I'll be able to write the way that they write. Right. You know, I think it's the same reason sometimes that new writers really want to go meet established writers. I mean, part of it's just because it's cool to meet somebody's work you admire. But I wonder if there's a contagious magic thing. You know, if I stand near them, maybe somehow it'll rub off on me. Maybe I'll catch whatever it is. But the fact is, in my experience, mostly readers, you know, people who just read, who don't want to write themselves, they don't really care if you sweated blood and it took you 15 years to write the book or if you breezed through it and wrote it in six weeks, hanging out at your awesome beach house in the Hamptons. All they care about is the words that are on the page. All they care about is the result. You know, so as long as the words on the page are good, I don't care how you get there, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's a refreshing uh, perspective to hear, especially since I think you're right. A lot of new writers do hope there's some sort of rune stone that they can kind of rub three times a day or whatever and kind of get the process started. It's, you know, it's really about that passion, like you're saying, that you, that you have and, uh, and just cranking it out. I will say that if you want to write, you should read a whole lot and you should write a whole lot. I think mm -hmm. that's absolutely True. And some people really need a schedule. Some people really benefit from it. I know people who like to do the chain thing where you try to write every day, even if it's just a little, and you try and get as long an unbroken chain of writing that you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And it is true that if you write every day, it does become this habitual thing and it does become easier to sit down. But I myself would find the loss of time playing video games to be incredibly sad. So I can't. <laughs> I get to such a regime myself, and I write plenty. I get plenty done, so I'm not too worried about it. But really, you know, I'm, I don't mean to disparage anybody's approach. Whatever works, whatever gets the words on the page. Well, what do you do in those moments? Uh, you, you mentioned you go on bike rides and things like that. Do you have any particular, uh, you know, words of advice for when you get, you do get stymied up? I mean, do you crack open a video game? Do you crack up your favorite X Men comic that you like from back when you were a kid? Or how do you get out of that? Yeah, again, this is. I would hesitate to say, you know, say that this is universal for the writer. Right. For, when I get stuck on a story, it's almost always because I haven't thought something through or because I'm going in a bad direction and some part of my subconscious is screaming at me to stop mm. and it's slowing me down. And, you know, whenever it's, I find that it's hard to write in such a way, writers talk about how it's hard to get your character across a room sometimes. Like it's just difficult to make anything, any forward momentum happen in the story. And I find usually when that's happening with me, assuming I'm not just really tired, that the problem is that I've taken a wrong turn somewhere. And so usually I have to back away and do something else. And yeah, as I said, physical activity is good or work on something else, try writing something else and kind of give some space for my subconscious to work out that problem. And, you know, often I'll go to bed, you know, annoyed and anxious about how it's going and I'll wake up in the morning and think, oh, 
I did X thing. My character did this thing, which is completely out of character. And the other thing for me is that I always fall back on thinking about the characters. I'm entirely a character-based writer. Um, I'm occasionally complimented on my plotting, which I find hilarious because I don't plot. What I do is create characters who are as believable as I can make them in my head. I try to model their interior states as much as I possibly can, and then I put them in a situation, usually some outlandish or supernatural or science fictional or bizarre situation, and then I just see what they would do. I just let that model of a human, an incredibly simplified, not nearly as complex and full of contradictions as a real human, but this incredibly simple little puppet that I have made, I release it into that situation, and I just see what they would do, and I report on what they do. And if it's not bad enough, I put in another character who has opposing desires and see how they crash into my first character. You know, wow. So, is it does this apply for short stories as well as novels? Yeah, yeah, everything. For me, I'm always I'm always about the character. For me, it's about the the primacy of it is about the character. So you don't always I, begin kind of with the end in mind of, of plotting. You kind of let the characters kind of see what they're going to do with it. No, no. And the way that I figure out what the end of a book is, I mean, if I'm planning it out ahead of time, I just think it through and I just try and think through what would happen. And also, you know, when presented with a choice, do the cool thing, you know, when there are a couple of ways it could go, pick the one that's weirder or yeah. Tragic. But quite often in the course of writing, the ending will change. I'll think that I know what I'm ending toward. I have that on a on a novel that I just turned in, um, Ears of Grace, that's coming out this spring. I had an ending planned. I had done an outline. I talked to my editor about it. It seemed like the right ending. And then I got, you know, into the last fifth of the book and realized it was just a stupid, banal, and out-of-character ending. It was terrible. And I had to really sit back and think about what would this character really do and what would be the most painful thing that I could do? You know, what is the most difficult but inevitable thing that I could unleash upon this character? Uh, so sometimes, you know, the, you have to be willing to throw away what you thought was a cool ending if a better or more true ending presents itself. Okay, that's interesting because uh, you mentioned that uh, when you do get stymied or whatnot or when things don't work, it's it's because uh, the experience doesn't really feel authentic to the characters. So it's really being true to what the character decisions would be that you know make things easier for you, I suppose, in the end. You know, and but the great thing is, as a writer, you're God. So if they're right. behaving really not making the story that you want, you just change what they're like. You just alter that, you know, that model of their interior state that you gave them. You give them some different drives or some different obsessions or some different overarching desires or, you know, or you just, you just kill them all like George R. R. Martin does, you know, <laughs> well, the key is to make the reader love them. And then... <laughs> Do you find uh, yourself that when you're uh, writing uh, all these different, in these different genres of horror and fantasy and fiction, is the writing process or the conception or uh, the imaginative process uh, differing at all of that? Or is it really, is it still kind of consistently with the, about the characters? Yeah, it's largely just about the characters. You know, um, I tend to not write, I mostly write fantasy. When I write science fiction, it tends to be of the really squishy side of science fiction, time travel, travel to parallel dimensions, things like that, which really, they ought to be fantasy, you know. Oh, I see you. We define science fiction as something that is possible. Meh, time travel, really, I don't know that that's any less plausible than gods appearing. Um, yeah, that's a good point. But but it's fine. Historically, it's uh, it's fine. It's it's still uh, it's still science fiction. Do you, uh, when you're writing, I guess you're not as focused on ideas as much as the characters, but I think a lot of science fiction uh, particularly is, is criticized for being tired, using tired tropes, and oh, we we're talking about you know time traveling again, or or whatever. These are these concerns that 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 concern you, I guess, or are these issues that concern you when you're writing? Are you trying to look for original or fresh ideas? Are you are you looking for original kind of fresh uh, human beings and characters in the, in the writing? Mostly that, uh, mostly the latter. I because I do love a lot of the what Rudy Rucker calls the power chords. You know, I like time travel. I like 
parallel dimensions a lot. And I think you can do a lot of stuff about the human condition with those. It's always nice to come up with a really cool idea or, let's be more realistic, a, a really fresh twist on something. But, I, you know, if what I want to do in fiction is create characters that fool the reader's brain into thinking that they're real. I mean, that's the whole idea. The trick is to make your reader care about them as if they were real people. And fortunately, that's pretty easy because humans are really good at modeling other creatures, other people in their minds. It's what we do when we socialize. So we have a lot of experience with sort of predicting or guessing what we think other humans are going to do. And that uh, lends itself well to being exploited by the fiction. I often read and watch things where I think, man, you know, it's a shame that fiction is driven by conflict because I love these characters. It'd be great if they could just like have a nice time, you know, if they could just fall in love and it would all work out. And even in my own fiction, I sometimes think, wow, these are some pretty nice people. It's a shame I have to do such awful things to them. <laughs> yes. That's why you do what you do, Tim, really. You have this God complex and you love to torturing people, basically, right? You know, if you can make somebody cry over an imaginary thing that only exists as pieces of paper with marks on them, I, you know, that's pretty amazing, pretty amazing magic, pretty amazing conjuring and alchemy. Absolutely. Well, I've got a couple, just a last couple of questions here. Um, you, uh, you wrote a story for us, uh, the Drabblecast uh, New Year's special that we did. Uh, and in typical Tim Pratt form, cranked up this great story with not a whole lot of notice. And, uh, you know, for the, for our holiday special, it's been kind of, kind of a tradition at this point, almost because we, we always kind of come to you for this. It's called Unbelief. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a fantastic story. People haven't listened to it yet about uh, going back and being able to, to relive one particular year of your life and, and affect change and whatnot. But the thing is, the end of the year, you go back and none of that really mattered. Um, which is just kind of a, a neat concept. But I'm, I'm curious to know uh, if you could relive a favorite moment in your writing career, what, what would that be? What would you go if you were uh, approached by this fairy or whatever that gave you this opportunity to relive one moment? Well, you know, I, uh, I won a Hugo Award a few years back, and um, the Worldcon where the award was given was held in Japan. And I did not go for various reasons. My wife was pregnant. Um, also, it was in Japan. Also, there was no chance that I was going to win the award. It was my first time ever being nominated. Indeed, still my only time ever being nominated for the award. And I was up against, you know, Neil Gaiman and some other people who tend to win. If I could go back, I would I would go to Japan, I got to say. Because my friend Paul Melko was there, who's a great writer. Uh, Melko was there, and I designated him as my acceptor in the unlikely event that I should win. And Melko got to walk around all night carrying my trophy. <laughs> <laughs> all of the Japanese fans, he told me uh, when he sent me the trophy, he said they would all bow whenever somebody went by holding a Hugo Award trophy. They would all bow to them. That's that's amazing. So you would bring your pregnant wife along with you, and uh, and if, if she gave birth in the plane, then I mean, whatever. People did it in streams and stuff back in the day, so it's cool. Yeah, I'm sure it would have been fine. Japan's a first world country. It would have been fine. It yeah, been <laughs> they would have figured it out. I mean, you just want a Hugo for God's sake. You know? <laughs> that's great. Another one of my favorite stories that you did was way back in the day. Uh, Morris and the Machine, which we were talking about time travel. I think you do have kind of a good little chunk of time travel stories, and they're always very strong. Uh, and Morris and the Machine is one of those, well, I don't want to give it away for people that haven't listened to it. It's definitely worth listening to, but uh, it's it's an interesting ethical question that arises from going back in time and, and what we can change and what we can't change. But uh, kind of in line with that and, and going back in time, I was wondering if there's any uh, advice you would give yourself or uh, writing wisdom uh, if you could go back when would you go back, first of all, in your life? And then what would that advice be to the young, uh, starry-eyed Tim Pratt of yesteryear? 
You know, I think I would have gone back to when I was 19 or 20 and when I was just writing all the time and sending out stuff all the time. And I was sending out stuff from the time I was 14 probably. But, you know, the first couple years that I was in college, I was just sending out stories constantly and getting rejected endlessly. I mean, I wrote something like 300 stories that I can, you know, that I kept track of, that I have somewhere in a title written down before I actually sold a story, you know, even to a small press. (laughs) As I said, I was a very slow learner. I think I would just say... It's cool. Don't worry about it. It's all going to work out. Just keep doing the work. Because, you know, there was a uh, new writers often get desperate and they just get demoralized and they just want to see their name appear somewhere by God. They just want some validation that they're not utterly wasting their time. I mean, I would like to go back and tell myself, hey, don't worry about it. Just take pleasure in the work, which is what I do now. Don't worry about outcomes. Just enjoy the process. But I know that as a you know 19-year-old, I would have said, shut the fuck up, old man. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you want a Hugo already, old man. I want my chance in the spotlight like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I would just say it's cool. Everything you're gonna you're gonna get everything that you wanted. It's gonna be fine. And the nice thing about having kind of achieved, I mean, you know, for me, like I never even thought about winning a Hugo or anything. I thought it would be cool to publish someday. I thought it would be neat to be able to write books. And I get to do that. You know, I've now that I've gotten what I always wanted to do, now is the part where I get to enjoy it and just try to get better at it and try and up my game. So I'm I'm in a pretty good place. You know, one of the things I appreciate about I follow you on Twitter. What's your Twitter at by the way? Is it it's I can't remember your name off the top of my head. At Tim Pratt, yep, T I M P R A T T. Yeah, whenever you're, uh, you know, you're you're also a senior editor at Locus Magazine, which is a great resource for writers out there, uh, you know, looking for for data and interviews and knowledge. It's just fantastic. Uh, but your your tweets about Office Baby are just <laughs> very much appreciated by myself. I get this impression that you know you're you're working and you're like you said you're crunching out this uh, story after story, sometimes under strong deadlines, and you're kind of. Being a you know a dad at the same time, and he's just making these uh, reflections and, and whatnot about life and about things in the office. It's uh, what, what is it like uh, in your day to day in that regard? Well, you know, I gotta say, office baby became office boy, and now let's he's in kindergarten. Um, oh. Much only at the office with us now. If uh, you know, if it's a day that school's out, we'll still he still gets to pop up to Lucas every once in a while. But he tends to be here when I'm working, and um, you know, he he was more famous on Twitter than I was, and he still says hilarious things. Now he just talks about Star Wars more than he used to. Um, it's great to share fandoms with your children. But you know, he uh, he learned that when I have my laptop open and I'm writing. He can bother me. He can distract me. But then I can't make money to take him to Disneyland. Oh. But to take him to Disneyland, he's got to let me ride. So, yeah. But when I'm stuck on something, he's the one I go ride bikes with. So it works out well. Yeah, that sounds like a great partnership, actually, you got going there. Oh, he's, a, he's, he's fun. And, you know, he's uh, already embracing the idea of fan fiction. You know, he's always saying, well, what if in Star Wars, blah. You know, and I said, well, let's talk about it. Let's work it out, man. So I, th- I think uh, we've got a budding game developer on our hands, too. Nice. So, I mean, you're going to want to clear that with Lucas, obviously, first, but <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. He's cool with fanfic, I think. <laughs> what are you uh, what are you excited about in your own and your writing and any cool stuff on the horizon for you right now? This book, Heirs of Grace, is coming out. I'm super excited. I think it's probably the best novel I've written in ages. It's a standalone contemporary fantasy. And it's coming from Amazon's science fiction imprint, 47 North. It's going to be a serial done in five parts. Uh, I think they're going to release them like a couple weeks apart. Um, so it'll be an ebook serial first, and then they'll do a paperback of the collection once it's done. But uh, I've, they've done some really cool stuff with their serial program. My friend David Schwartz did one called Gooseberry Bluff. There was a 13-part 
a contemporary fantasy serial that was awesome. And it was actually talking to him that got me interested in doing something like that. Uh, mine is going to be a mere five parts. So they're these big, like, novelette-sized chunks of book that add up to, I think, a very good uh, very good novel. So I'm excited about that coming out. And the Bride of Death, uh, the eighth, I guess, Marla Mason novel, is just out. Um, the trade paperback just now became available. And um, probably later this year, you're going to write the next Marla novel called Lady of Misrule, which I've been making some plans for. Nice. You know, I, I love the Marla Mason series. I've been into it. I had a big road trip a couple years ago, and I downloaded about them all of all of uh, iTunes and, and listened to them uh, and got caught up on the whole thing. And it was uh, it's I'd highly recommend that series to people who you know, I wasn't actually a huge fan of urban fantasy uh, for some of the things you mentioned before. Like I was thinking, oh, it's a girl who's banging a werewolf. <laughs> Not there's anything wrong with that. But uh, yeah, it wasn't ideal. But it's, it's such a cool, inventive world. And I love the fact that it, it, there's a cost to some of the magic. And uh, it's it's really gritty and it's it's neat. Um, so yeah, I definitely would recommend people check out that Marla Mason series. That's fantastic. And when, when is your uh, Amazon book dropping? The new one? I, I want to say February. The author's often the last one to know. But uh, we have cover art, which is awesome. Galen Dara, who does um, a lot of the art for Lightspeed Magazine, did this amazing cover. So it should be really cool. That's great. Uh, yeah, I'm super curious. Like, how does that process start when you're working with Amazon? I mean, this is a really 2000 kind of thing. Writers are starting to take advantage of some neat things that Amazon's doing. Well, it's interesting. Um, the editor that I deal with is David Pomerico, who I actually knew way back in the day when I was uh, writing books for Bantam Spectra, imprint of Random House that doesn't exactly exist anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, publishing overwent some upheavals, underwent some upheavals not that long ago. And uh, so I knew David when he was there, when he was my editor's assistant. So, uh, you know, I'd been talking to my friend David Schwartz about it, and he'd said that David was great to work with. And I dropped David a note and said, I'm kind of interested in what you're doing. And he called me up and we had a long talk uh, about publishing in general and about the kind of stuff they were interested in doing. And I pitched him a couple of ideas that I had, and it was lucky that my favorite was also his favorite. And uh, and then we did it. You know, I wrote it. And it was kind of neat, actually, to be a little writer wanky for a minute. Um, I'd actually taken a run at writing this novel, and it just felt like kind of an unfocused mess. I just didn't have... Uh, like a solid underlying structure it just kind of wandered all over the place so once i talked to david about doing it as a five-part serial and each part had to have kind of its own little miniature arc you know in addition to the overarching arc yeah once i had that structure suddenly i it all came clear like i had a form into into which i could pour all the ideas and images and character stuff that i wanted to do and it gave it a shape and it actually made it vastly easier to to write than it would have been otherwise and i think that the the structure really serves the story well too that's neat well good luck to you on that i know that people listening to this right now are, are going to be uh, excited to check out more of your work um, and i know you're on vacation this week Is that, am i correct in saying that uh you know vacation in the sense that i'm not at my day job at locust but i'm catching up on writing which is pretty nice actually it's all stuff i'm excited to be doing i have a couple short stories i need to write and uh, my wife and i for years we co-edited a zine called flytrap for five years and then we had a kid and stopped doing it but our kids you know six now and we felt like we had a little time so we actually are relaunching it and it should be out in about three or four weeks um middle of february we're hoping to to get the website launched and to get the print copies sent we actually did a kickstarter last year so that we could afford to pay authors decent rates as opposed to the old days when we were a photocopy dean that paid ten dollars a story we thought it'd be nice if we could give people you know a nickel a word so we've got some great stories some great art nonfiction, and it's really fun to put back 
back on the the fiction editorial hat again. I'm sure you know it. There are some pleasures to being an editor. So absolutely, yeah, it's a, definitely a different hat you wear that as a writer and a because you know I remember when you came out with the the flytrap Kickstarter and uh, was was really hoping that that would launch. Uh, because I think good writers are often very good editors, and, and this is the case, obviously, in this uh, instance here. When is that going to launch? We're hoping mid-February to have it. Um, on my plate this week is to get the revamped website up, since we have our old circa 1998 website still up. You know, I'm going to get the new website up, and um, yeah, layout's almost done um, on the print edition, because we're old school. We still want to do a print edition. That's right. fun. Uh, yeah, no, stuff is edited. All, all our material is in. We have the art. We have everything. We're just doing the finishing touches. So, Well, along with your Amazon book, February is going to be a pretty busy month for you, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, it should be. But it's all uh, stuff where I did all the work already, ideally. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm super jealous of you. You've got a uh, the best great-grandma in the world we've already established. You've got a wife that you're doing, you know, a fiction anthology with that uh, is helping you co-edit that. It's, and you've got a, a, a young one that helps you write. So Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, Tim, I certainly appreciate you uh, you taking the time to talk with me and my cat over there and the government agents that are interested in questioning his activities and uh, and all the you know thousands of Drabblecast and Tim Pratt fans out there listening right now we are very much looking forward to your next story thanks it's my pleasure alright well we'll talk to you soon Tim thanks gather round you lads and lasses and listen to me tale remember those days when men rode waves to hunt down a mother whale those ocean waves sent men to graves made widows weep and wail all for the glory of a good drinking story and the cheese of a humpback whale. Young Jack Taylor was a mighty fine sailor.